our passage this morning and our passage last week prove the fulfillment of Acts 1-8 initially. So you remember Acts 1-8, right? You will be my witnesses and you will receive power and you will be my witnesses here in Jerusalem and then in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This passage and the one last week are, are proving that that's already being fulfilled. And this is interesting to me. Even before Paul comes on the scene, the gospel is going to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's what we're going to see. This whole chapter really is, is meant to give us conviction of the unstoppable work of Jesus, right? He will spread his good news where he intends to spread it. This is before Paul, like I said, before he comes on the scene, and it reminds us that Jesus' Jesus's mission, Jesus' work, is, isn't really... Uh, isn't really connected to any certain individual in the church. He uses people, he uses instruments, but it is not necessary for Jesus to have anyone. He can send his message anywhere through anyone. You could say it like this, he doesn't need you, and that's why you should obey, right? Because you want to be a part of the joyful work that Jesus is about. Jesus is continuing his work in Acts, and, and you want to be a part of that work. I want to be a part of that work. It proves... It proves the fulfillment of Acts 1.8, which is an exciting thing, right? Jesus is continuing his work, and his work is happening, just like he promised that it would. Um, it's also doing something else. It's providing great assurance of salvation. Assurance of salvation in your heart and in your mind doesn't come from you or, or your, or your like, ability or how... Um, how great you think you are, how great you think your faith is, how great you think your repentance is, how great you feel like your strength is. Assurance doesn't rest ultimately in any of that. It's the object of your faith. It's the object of your repentance. That is where assurance comes from. We saw last week, we saw last week that uh, kind of Simon was a negative example of the glory of the gospel. Remember that? We saw that you could be a great sinner in, in the bonds of sin, ruled by envy and greed and covetousness. And you, if you repent, you could be saved. The greatness of the gospel is that it saves sinners. And it gives us assurance, even if I am the greatest of sinners, the worst of sinners, even if I, if I try to buy the power of the Spirit itself, I still get an offer of the gospel. And today we're going to see a positive example of the glory of the gospel. So we have a negative example of the glory of the gospel, and today we have a positive example of the glory of the gospel. The gospel goes to the ends of the earth, to those, those kinds of people that think they're the most far off, the most far, far gone, the most outside of the reach of God's grace, the gospel goes there too. It is an incredible assurance to us, not rooted in ourselves again, but rooted in the greatness of our God. That's, that's what brings you assurance. God's promises, God's word, God's power, that's what brings you assurance. We're going to track through our passage with uh, like three basic headings. Three basic headings this morning. The basic message, the basic message is, is Jesus is continuing his work, and his work is to seek and save those who are at the end of the earth. That is his work. He seeks and he saves sinners from the ends of the earth. But let's just break that down into three headings. The first one I would say is 
an unexpected detour. Let's look at an unexpected detour. Suddenly, unexplainably, the focus shifts. Uh, Philip, who we know had a very prosperous, successful ministry in Samaria, is suddenly told by God, by an angel from the Lord, to rise up and go somewhere. And notice where the Spirit tells him to go. It tells him to go to a desert road. I'm gonna, you're going to leave this prosperous ministry and you're going to go to the middle of nowhere, to a desert road towards Gaza. Now there are two roads that go from Jerusalem to Gaza. And this road appears to be, from the geographical indications that we have, it appears to be um, the road that was less traveled on. This was a more of a deserted road. It was a desert road, but it was also a deserted road. And so you wouldn't expect to see as many travelers on this road. And another thing, you, you see maybe that footnote in your Bible where it says, rise and go toward the south. It could be very well translated the south. But you also see that footnote that it, that same word south could mean noon. And that's kind of interesting to me if that is indeed the case. Not only does the Spirit of God direct Philip to go to the less traveled road, the deserted road. He also tells him to go there at noon, if that is the way you should translate it. And what does that mean? Well, he's, he's telling him to go to a, a road where a lot of people don't travel on already at a time of day when nobody is traveling. If, if that is the case, it could, it could be either way. Either way, the point here is that the Spirit of God tells Philip to leave Samaria and go to this deserted road in the middle of nowhere. It's an unexpected detour, and it provides an unexpected encounter. And I want you to just think about this for a little bit. And this is, this is what I love to do when I read the Bible. I think about what it's saying about our God. If, if you want to deepen your own personal reading of Scripture, just read it theologically. What does this say about who our God is? Our God doesn't follow the main roads. Our God doesn't go after the expected plan. Our God doesn't pursue the, the expected person. The person who, who thinks they would be on the top of the list of the people that Jesus would come and join to his group. No, our God is someone who seeks the unexpected. Who came to seek and save not the righteous, as Luke would tell us in his gospel, but the sinners, the unexpected person. And that's what we see even illustrated in the geography of this passage. Our God goes to the unexpected places. That's the message of Luke, right? The Son of Man didn't come to save the righteous, but he came to seek and save the lost, the sinners. And this is the work of Jesus that's continuing on, even in the book of Acts. A very exciting thought. But what what happened? Here, verse 27 says, he, he, he sees, he comes upon an Ethiopian. As a matter of fact, the translation there could be, behold, behold, an Ethiopian. It's, it's almost like saying this is unexpected, this is a surprise, this wasn't supposed to be happening. He's, of all things, there's a man in a chariot right there for him. He was not thinking this would happen. And by the way, we're very familiar with this story, so it's always very difficult to understand sometimes the meaning of the passage when you're so familiar with it. But we need to think about who this man was. He was the very definition of the ends of the earth. Very definition. If you, if you wanted a definition of the ends of the earth, 
that still was somehow loosely associated with uh, Jewish religion. This was it. This was the very ends of the, the reach of the Jewish religion. This was the ends of the earth. It was the ends of the earth geographically. Ethiopia was considered the, the far end of the world. Nobody went further than Ethiopia. The, the Roman Empire only reached down into Ethiopia later on. This was, this, is, this is who this man was. He was a part of a people group that were distant, the ends of the earth. This was an African man, really, the, 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 first, the, the first Ethiopian African man to enter faith in Christ Jesus. He was geographically separated to the ends of the earth, but also he was also the ends of the earth spiritually as well. Our passage also says something else about him that's very interesting. He was a eunuch. Um, a, a court official of Candace, but but notice he is a eunuch. He he was someone who was interested, clearly interested in the Jewish faith, but he couldn't be a full convert. He couldn't be a full what you would call proselyte, someone who had who had kind of changed his religion to the Jewish religion. He couldn't be a full convert to Judaism because he had this problem. He was a eunuch. He was either made by man or just naturally, but probably made by man, unable to have children. And of course, ancient nations actually really loved to make certain individuals eunuchs because they were considered trustworthy, right? You wouldn't be messing around or doing something you wouldn't be doing because you were trustworthy. Um, this man was in charge of all of the treasury of the queen. Um, Candace, by the way, is probably not her name. It's probably more of a title like Pharaoh or Caesar or something like that. He was entrusted with all of her treasure. But this position he had on earth, according to the Old Testament, made him spiritually unable to be in God's presence. There were laws about men who were eunuchs. You couldn't join the assembly. You couldn't become a priest. If you wanted to become a Jewish man, you couldn't really. You couldn't become a full Jewish man. You were separated. You were on the ends of the earth. But here is something very interesting about this man. Even though he has no real chance, no real shot at this God of the Bible, at this God of Israel, yet we still see that this man, of all people, desires it. He is a, what, worshiper of God. He, just, he has come from Jerusalem to worship now, he's likely a very wealthy and powerful man, like I was saying, but he wants something more. He's not satisfied with anything that he has in life. He, for some reason, wants to pursue this one true God, Yahweh of Israel, right? He has a heart problem, a problem with sin, and he is seeking after it in the God of the Israelites. Now, we don't fully know what he is seeking, but I think we have some clues we have some clues that he is a very earnest man, a very earnest worshiper. He is willing to spend a lot of time and money to pursue the Jewish faith. I was reading in one commentary that it took five months, one way, to go from Ethiopia to Jerusalem. Also, we see there that he's reading a scroll from a scroll of Isaiah. That was a, a very expensive scroll to gather, and he spent a lot of money to purchase it. 
It would have been it would have been perhaps a very large scroll. One time, Serena and I in Milwaukee went to see this thing called the Isaiah Scroll, and it just stretched out over the entire room. These scrolls could be anywhere from the length of 16 feet to 145 feet. This could be a massive scroll. It could be 12 feet by about or 12 inches by 8 inches like that. But then it could unroll into a very long scroll. These things were huge. They were expensive. They were rare. He was probably a man of high position because he was a, a eunuch in the queen's court. He had position. He had power. But he was willing. He was willing to spend a lot of time and a lot of money to pursue this God of Israel. And it seems as though he was very interested in Isaiah itself. Why, why was he carrying an Isaiah scroll? Well, there could be lots of reasons for it, right? Isaiah was a very famous prophet in the Bible. That would make sense if you want to know about the Jewish faith. You, you would be doing well to pick up the book of Isaiah and understand it. If you want to know about the God of Israel, Isaiah really introduces you to him. Um, but there is something interesting about Isaiah. Uh, There is something interesting about Isaiah. Isaiah makes a lot of promises about Ethiopians. I mean, not a ton, but it makes promises about the land of Cush, which is where Ethiopia would be. For example, in Isaiah 11.11, it speaks of this future remnant that God is going to gather from the people of Cush. I'm going, in, in the future day, I'm going to gather a people for myself from Ethiopia. That gets you excited if you're an Ethiopian, right? Also, Isaiah 56 has something even more incredible to say. It says God has future promises for those people that are on the the edges, for those people who have really no hope before him. He's going to have promises for the eunuchs, it says. He's going to give them a name, great monument in the house of himself. He's going to give them something greater than sons or daughters. There's great promises in this God of Israel in the, in the future. And so I could understand. I could understand why this man would be so interested in the scroll of Isaiah. I want to understand who this God is. And I want to understand when this will happen. I want to study this book and study and study to figure out when will these things take place? When will there be hope for me? Essentially, like 1 Peter 1, 11 would say, he was trying to figure out, like all the prophets did, uh, who would bring these promises about and when this person would bring them about. That's, that's what he was trying to figure out. I mean, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you want to know if there was hope for you before this God, this great God who, who he probably had heard about, rescued his people from Egypt, and was still faithfully with them even though they had sinned against him and were put into exile and now were brought back. You had heard rumors and reports of this God and you wanted to know, is there a place for me with this God? Is there a way that I can find fellowship with this God? I would want to know. I would be studying Isaiah like crazy. What was he seeking? Once again, we, we're not really told... But he had faith in Yahweh in some way. Maybe it was from the influence of the Jews that were prominent in Alexandria, which was just above him in Egypt. Um, We are given a few hints. We are given a few hints about his spiritual condition. Um, He was returning from worship. We We could say this. You could say this in just a word, right? He was prepared. He he had already seen 
who God was through the sacrificial system. His heart was already prepared for receiving Jesus because he knew something about the holiness of God, the separation of God. He knew something about, I, I can't get to this God. Nobody can get to this God on their own. They had a priest who would be sacrificing sacrifices all year long in order to make one sacrifice so that once a year he could go into the presence of God. Not everybody got to this God. I was, I'm a separate person. I, I, am, I am separated from him. I am sinful. I am an outsider of the outside of the outside of this God. He was prepared. His heart was prepared. He knew who this God was. Another thing he knew, he, he, he knew he didn't totally understand what God's promises meant. He, he had his, his scroll in his hand, but he was puzzled by them. We see this in verse 31. And he knew finally, this is kind of a repetition, but he knew also that he was prevented from enjoying full fellowship. He was, he was forbidden. He was hindered. He knew that there was a separation between him and God, but he also knew that there was a plan. There was a plan for him in the future to come to God. So my conclusion is this. He, he, he sought after God through this scroll, coming from Jerusalem, having experienced the worship of God and being outside of that worship. He, he was troubled, though, in his heart on this desert road with his sin. That's really what he was. He was, he was, he was troubled with his sin problem. I have, a, I have a permanent physical and spiritual hindrance from having fellowship with this God, and that troubles me. Because this God also makes glorious promises about people like me. But I have this problem within Problem with my conscience. Problem with my physical position. Problem with all of these things in my life that I cannot come to God. And he's trying to seek fellowship with God and he does not understand. But this leads us to our second heading, an open Bible. An open, an opened Bible. An open Bible. You have two options when you feel this way. When you feel like God has all of these great promises to offer to people, but not to me. You can either... Ignore the conviction of sin. You can downplay the conviction of sin. You can try to replace the conviction of sin with something else and try to try to try to root it out of your life. Or you can believe. You can believe in God's promise and you can seek him through his word to understand the way he has made available to you to find him. I love John 6, 37. Um, Jesus says this, All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and notice this, Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Notice that the very heart that seeks after God, that, that wants to deal with sin in your life, that has a problem with sin, wants to have fellowship with God, but has a problem with heart, uh, your, your sin, that very heart towards God is the very sign of God's election in your life, right? All that the Father has given to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. You have assurance that if that is your desire, God is actually calling you. But you can only come to Jesus through an open Bible. You need to have an open Bible. You won't get there by good feelings, by platitudes, by, by positive thoughts. You can only come to Jesus through his word. And this is where this man is. By the providence of God, he has the book in his hand. My daughter, Juliet, is reading The Pilgrim's Progress in a, in a 
in, in a certain form that she can kind of understand. But it was interesting. I was listening to her read it last night. And there's this, this story of this Christian who is making his pilgrimage to the celestial city. But the whole problem starts because he starts reading this book. And suddenly he has this weight on his back because he's reading this book. And some people around him are like, well, then stop reading the book. Why do you keep reading the book? This book is telling you bad things about yourself. Why would you want to keep reading a book that's making your life more of a burden? But that is, that is where it begins. That is the only way you're going to find salvation in God and, and hope from Jesus is if you pursue him through an opened Bible. This man is reading, probably out loud, and we notice Philip runs up to him and he, he asks the greatest evangelistic question that you could probably ever repeat. And, and, and take note of this, right? Sometimes evangelism is very easy, right? All he says is, hey, do you understand what you are reading? Hey, you can do that, right? I can do that. You can do that. Hey, what do you think this whole Christianity thing is about? What do you think this whole church business is about? Why do we gather here? Why do we read this book? Why do we worship? Why do we sing these songs? You can answer, ask those questions to unbelievers that are in your life. And then notice how he responds. I love his response. How can I unless someone guides me? And then he invited Philip to come up with him. Notice, the work of God in the heart creates humility. It creates this sense of, I don't totally know how to do this. I need someone beside me to help me, to guide me, to explain things to me so that I can fully understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. I need someone. The salvation of God creates humility, but it also requires humility. It requires humility. It requires humility for you to say to someone, hey, can you explain the gospel to me again? I don't know if I totally understand it. It requires humility for you to reach out to someone for help. Well, this Ethiopian eunuch has this open Bible in his hand. I mean, he reaches out for help, and then it says, it says in verse 35 that Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture he told him the good news about Jesus Christ. A uh, side application, are you at a place in your spiritual walk where someone could ask you what in the world is this passage about and you could starting at that place tell them the good news about Jesus Christ? Do you know the general context of Scripture, the big plan of God, where you can say, I know where this fits? I mean, admittedly, Isaiah 53 is a pretty easy place to jump off of from. But could you do that? Could you start in that place and direct people to the good news of Jesus Christ? Are you familiar with the good news enough that you could share it with someone else? What does he say? What was the good news of Jesus that Philip shared with this eunuch from Isaiah 53? Well, probably it wasn't just this passage. Luke's just kind of quoting what he was reading at that point. He was probably, probably reading the entire passage of Isaiah 53, and he probably was reading much more of Isaiah too, because once again, he's trying to figure out how in the world does this fit into that Isaiah 57 promise about eunuchs in the household of God. He's probably trying to understand Things, but, but notice what he says. It seems as though, I would say, Philip would say, this whole Old Testament sacrificial system that points to your separation that you just experienced, 
that had you know, that involved that lamb that you saw that had its throat cut and its blood run out, and then it was burnt on the offering that you maybe heard about from a distance. You couldn't get close. That whole Old Testament system was meant to point to Jesus. Isaiah 53, 7. You don't have to turn there. But, I mean, it points to Jesus, and it paints him, verse 7, as the true and better lamb. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shearers is silent. He opened not his mouth. No, this is, this is the true Lamb of God that, as, as John the Baptist would say, has come to take away the sins of the world. Like that Lamb that you saw at the temple. No, this is the true and the better Lamb that, that takes away sin. This is the true and the better substitute. Like, once again, in Isaiah 53, 6. Like sheep, we have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I had sin laid on me, but the Lord has laid that iniquity, that sin, on Jesus Christ. He is the true and better substitute. And then you could see in Isaiah 53, verse 10, he is the true and better picture of God's wrath and God's grace. It says this in verse 10 of Isaiah 53. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. That is the consequence of sin. Crushing. Wrath poured out is God's crushing. This is the judgment that sin requires. But it's on him. It's on him. And and instead of us, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone from his own way. And the Lord has laid on him our iniquity. This is the picture of the wrath and the grace of God. Jesus is the greatest picture of all of these things. If you want to know God's holiness, if you want to know God's mercy and God's grace, you find it at the cross of Jesus Christ. And this is, of course, it says here in... In Acts 8, that Philip started at this passage, and he probably led to a call to faith and repentance, just like Peter would have called to, right? Um, Acts 2, 8, 2, 38, it says this, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, now in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But let's not miss out on the good news that this would mean for this Ethiopian man. What is the good news of Jesus? The wrath of God on him so that we can be brought near to God. The good news to the ends of the earth, to this Ethiopian eunuch is this. I can enjoy the fullness of God's fellowship in Christ Jesus. I can enter into the assembly and worship him I can go into the very holy presence of God in Christ Jesus. The fullness of God, that is what you get in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You get a full relationship with the eternal God. Not because of what you have done, but because your sin has been laid on him.
How do you get to him? You repent, you confess your sin, you believe, you, 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 you confess it publicly. That's what baptism is. And by the way, a, a Gentile proselyte or somebody like this man would have totally understood the whole baptism concept because this is how a, a, a proselyte, a, a convert to Judaism would have um, communicated their public confession of, of obedience and faith in, um, in God. They would have been baptized. This was a sign and a symbol of conversion. It was, it was necessary, so it would have made total sense. And so if Philip did end the sermon the way I think he did, which is the way the Apostle Peter ended his Pentecost sermon, it would have ended with that call to repentance and faith and a public confession and baptism, right? We, we, we don't even know what Philip says, and that's very interesting to me. But we kind of get a picture of what Philip says by how the eunuch responds. And this leads us to our, our third heading. Let's, let's call this one an obedient response. An obedient response. As they were going along. So picture this. This whole conversation is bumping down this old road on their way to Gaza in the back of a chariot. They're moving, apparently, because they come upon some water. And the eunuch says, see, there is water. Or that same old word again, behold, surprise, surprise, look what we find. Wasn't expecting this on a desert road. There's water right here. What prevents me from being baptized? Catch that word. Notice the transformation, the understanding of the eunuch in the truth of Jesus Christ. What hinders me? What forbids me? What keeps me away? What gate is blocking me? What law is blocking me? There is nothing that prevents me from being baptized, from believing in Christ and and enjoying the full fellowship of God. If I have Christ Jesus, I have the fullness of God. Nothing hinders me. And notice there's a lesson here, right? The heart that hears, that understands, and that believes the gospel can't wait, right? I can't wait. Can't wait to respond in faith and obedience. It's eager to obey. It's, it's a transformed heart even of itself. And I want you to see something. We, the heading is here, an obedient response. We could say, what, what, is, what does faith look like? What does faith look like? What does conversion faith look like? It's, uh, it's two things. It's an understanding obedience, and it's a joyful obedience. It's, a, it's first an obedience that understands something about the gospel. You're not coming to Jesus because of something you necessarily do or all of these works that you do. You're coming to Jesus because you understand the truth of the gospel. You, you understand that you have sin, that you have separation, your heart's been prepared. You, you have an inability to come to God. You're on the outside. But you also understand that, hey, if, if I believe in Jesus, no sin, no social stigma, no separation can separate me from God through Jesus Christ. You understand that. It's, it's not, I'm working to God. It's, man, in Christ Jesus, I have all the righteousness that is required before God. And, and notice, he also understands that nothing prevents him. That's very interesting to me, like I said. 
all he had known up to this point in his life in, in pursuing this God of Israel was, I am prevented, I am kept. But now he understands that nothing can prevent him. All you need, isn't that wonderful news? All you need to come to God, to enjoy his presence, his fellowship, is to be in Christ Jesus. That's all you need. You confess your sins, you believe in what he has done, and you come to God through him in obedience. This is, by the way, the bedrock of your assurance as a Christian. It's not in me. It's in Christ Jesus. I just obediently follow. And, and now as a Christian, I, I love to follow. It's, but it's not about me being perfect. It's, it's, a, it's about faith in Christ Jesus and trusting in Him. That is the understanding obedience. That uh, you are not prevented right now. You don't need to spend a lot of time getting ready to come to Jesus. You don't need to work your way to faith in Christ Jesus. No, it's now. It's now. Today is a day of salvation. But notice it's also a joyful obedience. I love verse 39. When he came out of the water. Well, first off, this is crazy. The Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. Same word used for the rapture. Just, just gone. Just like that. Carried him away. God had a different work for Philip. We see that in Caesarea. And actually, Philip will show up again in Acts 22. But until then, uh, the Spirit of the Lord leaves the Ethiopian eunuch alone. But notice, there's a one-word characterization for the rest of his life. It's not anxiousness. It's not worry. But he goes away rejoicing. That is the word that dominates the Christian life when they understand the truth of the gospel. When they understand it, they, they live a life that is marked by rejoicing and joy in Christ Jesus. And that is the good news of the gospel that we see. It goes to the ends of the earth. And the good news is this is the same situation that can be yours if you will believe and joyfully respond in obedience to the truth of the gospel. Do you know that you have a great separation between you and God? Do you know that you're separated by your sin and by his holiness, by uh, a wall so much more infinitely impenetrable than the temple was? Your sin, rightly understood, helps you to understand that you are on the ends of the earth spiritually. You're at the back of the line. There's no, there is no hope for you. That, that is what you need to understand. There's a great separation between you and God. But also, do you know that there is a great Savior sent to you? Not a Savior who saves the best of the best, the likely of the likely, the first in line. Oh, it's a Savior that skips the line and goes to the back and goes to seek and to save the ends of the earth. This is not a Jesus who seeks the righteous. It's a Jesus who seeks and saves sinners. And these are exactly the kinds of sinners that he saves. Two more thoughts, and then we're done. The great good news of the gospel is, in one sense, not about being good, but about being sinful. Understanding your sinfulness. Understanding your separation. 
That is what makes the good news of the gospel so good. This man responded instantly and joyfully because he understood his separation. And the glory of the gospel is not necessarily there for a freedom to sin, but uh, power of freedom to obey. At Shepherd's Conference this last week, I think one of my favorite quotes uh, was from MacArthur. Surprise, surprise. Should have seen that coming a mile away. Um, he was talking about how the Christian life creates an obedience in you. But it's not an obedience to try to please God. It's an obedience from the inside out. An obedience from, from the new covenant, from a heart transformed. And, and he says this, it's not perfection, it's affection and direction. Right? That, that is how you know you are a believer in Christ Jesus. You have an affection for God, a desire to be close to God, and stay close to God, and you are in that direction. You're pursuing Him. You're seeking to walk in obedience. It's not perfection. It's affection and direction. It's a life dominated by rejoicing. It's a life dominated by joy in your fellowship that you have with God. Even if you're on the ends of the earth, even if you're on the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we thank you for this moment. We thank you for this passage, and we pray that you will continue to speak to us truly through these words and help us and encourage us in the truth of the gospel. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.